This is episode number three of the Individual One Podcast. I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California. We are distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. And this is the brand new program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald Trump from a conservative perspective because, you know, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media has lost their freaking minds and cannot be objective. And the conservative, now state-run media, has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Hopefully you've enjoyed the first two episodes of the podcast. If you are have not yet heard the first two, please check them out. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it, share it via social media. Uh, hopefully you know the drill. Also, you can uh, check out more of my stuff at freespeechbroadcasting.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Zygmunt Freud, a terrible college nickname, Zig, Z-I-G-M-A-N-F-R-E-U-D, Zygmunt Freud, and the podcast has its own Twitter feed, which is individual, the number one pod. That's individual, the number one pod. So individual one pod is the source right now for all of your information about uh, this particular podcast. This episode number three is going to be a little bit different than the first two. The first two were kind of a way of setting the foundation for, for where we've been, how we got here, where we are, and a little bit about where we're going with this. Uh, we have referred to this podcast as kind of chronicling season number five, as I refer to it, of the Trump reality television show. Some people have referred to it as season number three because this is his third year in office. But I count uh, him winning the Republican primaries back in 2016 and winning the general election as two different reality shows. And so we're now in season number five. And I think there's a very good chance we're going to have season six and maybe even beyond that. But we'll be chronicling it all here on the Individual One podcast. And so what we're going to do in this particular edition is we're going to review the news of the week. And as usual, there has been a ton of it. I, I suspect that the focal point of this episode is going to be telling you the full and real story of the Trump-National Enquirer relationship and why, in some ways, it might be the biggest scandal. Underline might be. It's hard to tell because <laughs> there's so many to choose from. But uh, it might be the most scandalous element so far proven about the Trump administration, and there was a huge development on that front, uh, one involving uh, Jeff Bezos, the guy who uh, owns Amazon and the Washington Post, uh, that was, it, it was such a unbelievably bizarre story that uh, it, it's almost uh, beyond fiction. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, it, was, it, it but we'll get into the details of that. But first, I just want to go through a couple other things that happened uh, before that uh, revelation, which uh, occurred on uh, Friday of this past week, uh, the State of the Union address, which is really the last chance that a president has on a yearly basis to speak to a good portion of the American public. It, let's be clear, it's nowhere near a majority of the American public, and it's nowhere near as influential as it used to be, largely because of the fragmentation of our media. And, and you'll hear me talk a lot about the fragmentation of our media, because to me, that is 
how Donald Trump came about to begin with, and it's a large part of how it is that he's able to maintain his base of power. Uh, Because we now all live in our own little bubbles, our own little silos. We pick our own information. Uh, We uh, get uh, whatever opinion we had to begin with reinforced by whatever media outlet we choose to absorb or not to absorb. And and I question whether or not the State of the Union can even still break through the clutter, and and certainly not in any way, shape, or form the way that it used to before there was massive media fragmentation. But, you know, it's a big audience, nowhere near like, for instance, the most recent Super Bowl. But uh, it's a big audience. And Trump, I I think smartly, uh, gave something to each element of his base of support. And that's what this really was. And unfortunately, Trump is not alone in this. That's what the State of the Union address has become in uh, certainly last couple of decades. It's basically a laundry list of things you want to do to appeal to whatever political faction you want to like you in that moment. Now, Trump's political faction is more narrow than any other certainly modern president, maybe any president we've ever had in the history of the United States. And in a way, that makes his job a little bit easier. See, because most presidents are trying to appeal to the center in some way, shape, or form, the people who are undecided, those who are, you know, could have their opinions shifted. Well, there's so few people in that category now, especially with Trump, that Trump's really just trying to masturbate his base. I mean, that's really what he's doing. And it's interesting because his base is not, at least based upon the speech, conservative. I mean, a large part of what this podcast is about, I'm a conservative. I'm a lifelong libertarian conservative. I've been a Republican my whole life, principled all the way through, really believe in things. Not, you know, I'm open-minded on stuff, but I, I, I am a Republican. I'm a conservative because of the principles which underline that philosophy, at least what I thought that philosophy was. Well, there's very, very little indication from Trump's State of the Union address that traditional conservatism is even remotely part of this. It's not. This is Trumpism. Now, there's some traditional conservative constituencies, like, for instance, pro-life. You know, he gave the pro-lifers what they wanted in that speech as an example. But from a political standpoint, I thought the speech was smart. I, I, and there's some indication early on that the you know two polls that have come out since the State of the Union address. One is Rasmussen, which is basically, for all intents and purposes, Trump's own poll. I mean, I don't believe Rasmussen at all. I think it's amazing that Rasmussen is still even considered remotely credible when we just had a midterm election in the United States and they were completely wrong on virtually everything, and they've overshot. Trump's approval rating on a consistent basis. But there's one other poll indicating that that Trump gets a bump out of the State of the Union. Every president has gotten a bump out of the State of the Union. But there's there's a flip side to one of the more frustrating aspects of the Trump presidency, which I have already mentioned on this podcast, which is effectively that nothing really matters. Nothing bad that he does really has a a massive impact, uh, certainly not on his approval ratings. With me, it's just works you know it's magic and there's been this teflon i mean my gosh bill clinton was referred to as a teflon president in the united states in the 1990s he had nothing compared to to donald trump 
especially among his base of support. Among that, whatever it is, 40, 41, 42 percent of the public, there's almost nothing he can do wrong. He has almost half seriously said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his base uh, would not care. And, And there's some truth to that. But there's a flip side to it. Nothing matters against him, but very little, if anything, matters in his benefit. And what I mean by that is, okay, so he got the State of the Union address that he wanted. He was able to titillate his base in certain ways and, you know, touch all the, all the right uh, points that, that make the people who might already support him support him more. And I don't believe it's going to have any impact for him in the positive direction more than a week or two. Because we are so fragmented, we are so polarized, no one changes their minds about anything. There's a, there's a small group of people who go with the direction of the wind, and so for two days the wind was more in his direction, at least among the people that he wanted to appeal to, and the people he wanted to appeal to liked the speech, and I understand why. He, he gave them what they wanted. And so from a political standpoint, it was a smart speech, but I think that the significance of it is very limited. And it's interesting because, you know, I have most of my friends are conservatives. I don't have many friends because I don't like people, but that's another story for another day. But the friends that I do have, most of them are conservatives. And, of course, many of them wanted to know, well, John, what would you think of the speech? Because, of course, you know, they, they want to stick it to me because they know I'm, I'm largely an anti-Trump conservative. And what I found striking about it, and I told them the same thing that I, I just said here on the podcast, and that is, yeah, it was, it was good. It was smart politically. I, you know, the things I didn't like about it, uh, which I'll get to momentarily. But by and large, it was a, a politically prudent speech. Uh, but it's not going to have much significance. And what's interesting is a lot of conservatives still think that this kind of stuff matters, that, that, that he's going to be helped by this. And it's just not the case. So what has to occur to dramatically impact Trump's standing with the American populace in either a positive or negative direction is astonishing how big an event it has to be. I mean, we're almost not quite to the point where it has to be like a 9-11 situation, but we're darn close. I mean, it has to be almost a black swan event. I mean, in in both directions. And so I don't think he's going to get much of a real significant bump out of this. I mean, there are people who I have formerly respected within the conservative movement who praised this speech as even being Reagan-esque, as if he's Ronald Reagan. Come on. Seriously? I mean... You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? uh, But that's the world we're living in now, because the conservative media is state-run. They are compromised, and they are co-opted. Never forget that. Now, as far as the parts of the, the State of the Union address, which I think indicate just how unbelievably and dangerously desensitized we are, uh, in this country and around the world almost, about the uh, nuttiness of Donald Trump and how he's able to get away with things no one else could possibly get away with simply because of the low expectations that he has created. He actually stated during the State of the Union address that if he had not won the 2016 election, that we would be in a massive nuclear war with North Korea. He said that. He said that. And there was almost no reaction to that. I mean, that is a flat-out absurdity. It is absolutely absurd. And 
yet he seemed to believe it. He said it not not at a pep rally, not in a tweet, at the State of the Union address. And everyone went, oh, well, you know, that's just Trump being Trump. Boy, he's Trumpy. <laughs> It's it's really quite amazing. Correct. But that's that's how he that's in a way that's his genius. The genius is he has so disrupted our normal standards and so desensitized us that he can get away with stuff that other people couldn't even dream of getting away with. In a similar vein, he also said that if it was that that one of the greatest risks to our economy is Congress investigating him. Correct. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. That is completely uh, and, and totally. It's just flat out ridiculous. And, uh, and it's also desperate. Because why else would he say that unless he, he was afraid of what the Democrats were going to do with regard to investigating him and what Robert Mueller may end up doing to him? Uh, with regard to investigations. I mean, if you have, that's like the last bastion of scoundrels. If you have to claim that the economy will go to hell, if if you find out about w- uh, what a scoundrel I am, then uh, th- that's a problem. And it's not true. I mean, most of what Trump says is in some way, shape, or form not true. But that that's really particularly not true. And the proof of that, by the way, is Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton got impeached. And it didn't impact our economy one damn bit in the 1990s. And so he's just making stuff up. But, of course, you know, his cult will buy it. I love the poorly educated. Because they, they want to. I mean, he's their hero, and he makes them feel good about themselves. And that's, what all, that's really all that matters in this day and age. And as far as um, there was another couple of elements of the speech I thought were noteworthy. He got a very dramatic applause line that conservatives love when he declared emphatically that the United States of America will never be a socialist country. And boy, I hope that's the case. The fact that Trump said it makes me nervous because almost everything Trump says, as I've already alluded to, is at least a little bit false. Well, this I found to be hopefully not false, although I think it probably is, but more importantly, I found it to be quite ironic because if the United States does fall into socialism, and of course defining socialism is exceedingly difficult. I mean, you could actually argue we're already trending in that direction and we are already at least somewhat socialistic in this country. I would not say that we're socialism. This is not socialism that the United States is living under. But you could certainly argue that there are elements of socialism that have already been incorporated into the way our government works and the way our economy works. And by the way, some of that could be theoretically good in the short run. But in, in the longer run, I don't think there's any doubt that we are heading towards socialism. That is kind of part of the human condition. I mean, free stuff for doing nothing is very enticing, especially as your population becomes lazier and more and more uneducated. I love the poorly educated. I mean, that's going to be the gravitational pull. And there have been philosophers who have written about this for, for many, many years, that this was in the inevitable result of the American experiment, that this could only last for so long because eventually the voters 
are going to give themselves as much free stuff as exists. And then eventually there's not going to be any more free stuff to give. And by the way, Trump has taken advantage of that, which is why I found that statement to be ironic. One, because Trump is not fighting socialism. He's growing government. He's growing government spending. He's growing massive deficits. He's He believes in a very strong central government and an executive figure in the presidency, all of which is theoretically part uh, of a movement towards uh, socialism. But more importantly than any of that, if the United States does become a socialistic country in, any, in the near future, I'm pretty darn sure it's going to be as a result of the Trump presidency, that it will be a backlash to the Trump presidency. Like, for instance, I'm a big believer that if Hillary Clinton had beaten Donald Trump, that right now Republicans would for sure control both houses of Congress, the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, and that she would basically be powerless and she would be unpopular and that uh, there'd be a very good chance that a Republican would win in 2020 and and certainly in 2024, and that for all intents and purposes, socialism would be held in check, that the, the, the... our drive in that direction would at very least be slowed down if not completely halted because a Democrat with the Republican Congress can't get away with that. However, under Trump, we're, we're, fiscal conservative has, conservatism has been blown apart. It no longer exists. The Tea Party no longer exists. The Freedom Caucus has acknowledged basically that it doesn't care about deficits or government spending or the size of government. So Trump has broken the back of the resistance to socialism philosophically, but more importantly than that, he has driven up the negative perception of conservatism and the Republican Party to the point where we just had a midterm election and the Republican Party got trounced, and there's a darn good chance they're going to get trounced more in 2020, and that eventually we're going to have a very Democratic, progressive maybe even socialistic, Democratic president, maybe with a Democratic House and Senate with no guardrails. That, to me, is my greatest fear. And so I want history to record what Trump said there about the United States never becoming a socialist country because I think there's a darn good chance if we do become one, it's because of Donald Trump, which, of course, would be kind of emblematic of the bizarre world in which we're currently living. So that, that's the, the essence of the State of the Union address. There were a lot of other things that, that happened this week that I want to mention. Uh, and, and one of them deals with, tangentially, what Trump said in the State of the Union address about North Korea and how we would be going to war with them if he had not been elected. Well, he, has, uh, he announced that night and has added details subsequently that he's going to have a second summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. And uh, this, there's so many things that are amazing about this. One is that it's going to be in Vietnam. <laughs> now, you would think that from a political standpoint, a guy who uh, dodged the Vietnam draft with uh, numerous deferments because of uh, bone spurs that there's no evidence existed, that uh, you would avoid Vietnam at all costs. After all, he avoided Vietnam at all costs the first time around. <laughs> But now he's eager to go back. But 
in keeping with the theme of this podcast being, you know, episode five of the reality TV show that is the Trump presidency, I found it particularly amazing that there was an Associated Press story out just yesterday that the, the president's advisors tried to tell him that, you know, a second Kim Jong-un summit meeting is not going to get nearly the kind of buzz, the kind of excitement, the kind of media coverage that the first one did, because, you know, after all, the sequel is never as good as the original or hardly ever is. And and the first one, uh, well, it got a lot of fanfare and Trump was in love with the, the media coverage that he got. And some of it was fawning about uh, how he was brokering peace with this uh, this nut job uh, dictator in North Korea, and that uh, maybe it takes a nut job to deal with a nut job. <laughs> and by the way, there could be something to that, but I digress. He loved the reaction to the first one. And he actually told his advisors, <laughs> I mean, I, I realize I'm seeing this through the prism that I, I view the Trump presidency as a reality TV show, but it would be hard not to look at the Associated Press story and go, Holy cow, the president himself views his policy decisions the same way because he told his advisors, well, look, uh, I believe, and I'm basically quoting here, that the, the battle between good and evil will be irresistible, and this will work the second time around. Now, by the way, not work from the standpoint of coming to some sort of legitimate agreement where there's real peace in the long run uh, on the Korean Peninsula. No, 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 no. Work from the standpoint of a reality TV show. That's the way he looks at this. Like he's a a pro wrestling promoter, which, by the way, Donald Trump has been involved (laughs) deeply with pro wrestling, even acting out in uh, pro wrestling skits. But this is, it feels all staged like a reality TV show or like a, a pro wrestling event. But this is serious freaking business we're talking about. And that, to me, encapsulates the real danger of the Trump presidency. He doesn't seem to understand or care the stakes. And he looks at everything as if it's all about him and how much attention he is going to get and what the nature of that attention will be. Correct. That's what he does that's how he sees the world and that's consistent with my own very short interaction with him my father's interactions with him uh, you know numerous other i mean that's just verifying what many 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 other people have said and what your own eyes should tell you about how donald trump views the world he is i mean i thought barack obama was a narcissist donald trump takes that narcissism to a whole new level And he literally views the world as if you are a good guy or a bad guy. Remember what my my daughter Grace said. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Well, (laughs) Trump views the whole world as if you think Trump is, or at least say that Trump is a good guy, then you yourself are a good guy. And conversely, if you say that Trump is a bad guy or say that Trump is a bad guy or act like he's a bad guy, then guess what? It doesn't matter who the rest of you, or what the rest of your persona is, you're a bad guy. And because Kim Jong-un has praised him, this is a guy, I mean, oh my gosh. It's amazing that he, in exchange for some complimentary words from, from a, a brutal dictator, 
He he will drop any pretense uh, and will praise them publicly and uh, did so just the other day on Twitter and claimed that he was going to create an economic powerhouse in North Korea. By the way, speaking of socialism, I mean, here's the guy who says, America will never become a socialist country. And then a couple of days later, he's praising North Korea for becoming a, an economic powerhouse or what they will become under Kim Jong-un. <laughs> you, you literally can't make this stuff up. But this, this second summit has been scheduled. Uh, my guess is that it will not get as much fanfare as the first time around, uh, although his fans will love it. They'll tell us once again how he's doing something that no one other American leader could have done and that no substantive changes will actually occur because that's also classic Trump. And Trump knows how the media works better than anybody who has ever held his position. And he is a master media manipulator. He understands that the media, because of the way they work and the fact that they're, you know, frankly, you know, that they will fall for the same thing over and over again because they, they it's just too dramatic for them to resist. And they don't have the balls to overtly call the whole thing out as a sham. They will pretend that his words matter. They will pretend that Kim Jong-un's words matter. And it will be perceived as, oh, another step in the right direction. Yet nothing in the end will ever get done because Trump knows the incredibly short attention span of the news media and the public. And so the pretending that something has gotten done is basically as good in Trump's mind as the actual hard work of getting something done. And once it gets proven a couple of months later or whatever it is that nothing actually happened and that North Korea is acting exactly as they always have, no one will care. No one will care. It's all about what happens today or maybe tomorrow. Trump is not a chess player. He's at best a checkers player. He might even be just playing shoots and ladders. It's all about what's going to happen. Not maybe not even today. It's been it's you know he works on, on an hourly basis, and so this is going to be another scam. But it's another scam that will probably work for him. Probably not as well as the first one did, but uh, it will probably still work for him. But nothing will get done. And and frankly, there will be negative impact of this because how do you how do future American presidents deal with a Kim Jong Un now? Because Trump has already given away the store. I mean, he's already given Kim Jong Un everything he possibly could have wanted and more. He's already given him more credibility, more standing, you know, more prestige. He's met met, met with him with no preconditions. I mean, they, they, there used to be. A, a standard that was set here so that we would have weapons, to, now maybe not literal weapons, but figurative weapons, to deal with these types of people and to incentivize their good behavior and punish their bad behavior. Trump gave all that away. Why? For his own adulation. And that really is at the core. That and his and the fact that he's a pathological liar. His narcissism and his pathological lying are really at the core of why I have such a big problem with Donald Trump as a person and as a president. Correct. Uh, now, there's another element, though, that's almost as important to understanding Donald Trump, the persona, 
that we learned more about in the last week, but which got almost no media coverage. Uh, here in the United States, it got uh, completely, even though it was in the New York Times, it got completely overshadowed by what's been going on in the chaos with the, uh, the state of Virginia and the governor there uh, with an old photo of uh, him in what looks like blackface and uh, a scandal involving his lieutenant governor. And all that had, you know, created all sorts of, of controversy that overshadowed a story that is really quite amazing. And that is that we now learned through the New York Times, and it seems highly credible, it's been denied by the Trump administration, but I don't believe their denials because this story makes perfect sense. And like I said, the sourcing seems very solid and there's no incentive for anyone from Deutsche Bank uh, to to tell anything other than what the truth is here um, uh, because it's of what their self-interest is. But we now know that during the 2016 campaign, wrap your minds around this one, folks, in the 2016 campaign, that Donald Trump's company, the Trump Organization, was in such a cash bind, they were hemorrhaging cash so much that they tried to get a loan. Now, they tried to get a loan ostensibly because they needed money to spend on one of Trump's more recent golf course purchases, Turnberry in Scotland. Now, as a, as a little bit of backdrop here, I'm a golfer, and um, I've actually spent a lot of time in my life at the Doral Golf Course, which Trump was trying to mortgage from Deutsche Bank to get money for Turnberry. And his purchases of Doral and Turnberry have always, even way before he ran for president, have always, I wouldn't say set off alarm bells, but raised my eyebrow. Like, really? What? I mean, I've lived a couple miles away from Trump's golf course here in the Los Angeles area, and I was not particularly impressed. And it was an incredibly damaged property. It was basically falling into the ocean. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's not a great golf course, and it hasn't done particularly well. And so I'm thinking, how in the world, and we later learned from reporting in the Washington Post, that Trump actually purchased Doral and Turnberry with far more cash than was his normal M.O. Trump's normal M.O. has always been that uh, he, he borrows. You know, he's the, 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 the credit king, I think he's referred to himself as. That's mainly because he doesn't have the cash, but he's always borrowing other people's money and, and you know, then using his brand to try to increase the value of whatever it is that he's purchased. And if he keeps buying as much stuff as, as he can, sometimes he doesn't even have to pay back the loans because they have no leverage against him. And, and to go back even further... I've referenced this before. In the early 1990s, it all caught up to him because the, the value of his properties were dropping because of the, the state of the economy at the time, and he was going bankrupt, and the banks weren't getting paid. And they all had a meeting, and they basically decided to let Donald Trump live because they thought that that gave them at least a chance to get their money back, that his brand was of some value, and if they killed him, figuratively, that would kill the brand, and therefore they would never have any chance to get their money back. So they cut him a, a sweetheart deal. They even gave him an allowance 
They gave him an allowance, several hundred thousand dollars a month, so he could, could pretend to be rich, so he could keep the brand up, so that they might get paid back. Now, I don't know the exact figures, but I'm very confident that they didn't get paid back, uh, at least not in full. And then because of that, Deutsche Bank in Germany was the only major lender that would give the Trump organization money. They, they for whatever reason, felt like he was still worth the risk. So that gets us to 2016. So he's running for president. The Trump organization is hemorrhaging cash. They need money to spend on Turnberry. They turn to the only place they can turn, which is Deutsche Bank. They ask for only a few million dollars. I think it was $10 million, but it was somewhere in that range. Not in a ridiculous amount of money. $10 million. And what does Deutsche Bank do? They unanimously reject the loan application. So Donald Trump, in the middle of the 2016 primaries, this was March of 2016, the supposed super-rich tycoon real estate multi-billionaire claims to be worth $10 billion. This is the foundation of his entire campaign. I mean, he has no other accomplishments other than being a reality TV host. Follow me. I'm super rich. I can make you super rich, and I can make the country super rich. That you know, that's essentially his argument to the country. Other than build that wall, 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 build that wall. Yeah. And so far, that hasn't happened, and there's very little chance that that's going to happen. So, there, there, so the, the, this con was based basically in two prongs. Build the wall, and I'm a rich guy, and I'll make America rich, and I'll make America great again. Well, at this very time that this is happening, <laughs> Deutsche Bank, the only people that would give him money over these many years, is rejecting the loan. And according to the New York Times, they're rejecting it because they're concerned that if Trump becomes president and doesn't pay back the loan, that them trying to get the president of the United States to pay past debts is going to be exceedingly difficult and problematic for them. <laughs> now, these are the people who know Trump best. They know his finances best because they've been dealing with him for decades. And they reject the loan. Now, why is this important? Well, the main reason why it's important is because it shows what a complete and total fraud Donald Trump is. Correct. It's all a mirage. I like to use the, the image of the Wizard of Oz, okay? You know, Donald Trump, uh, to his fans, is the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. The great and powerful Oz. To those who understand him, he's the old guy fumbling with the controls behind the curtain that Toto finds. That's who Donald Trump is. It's all a sham. It's all a con. And he's been masterful at it. But what's the most amazing is he's been masterful at it despite numerous failures. <laughs> There's got to be at least some luck involved in this. I mean, he, is, he has had remarkable luck. Now, I'm, I'm not a big believer in luck. So you got to give him at least some credit. He is an amazing survivor. 
I've also uh, I've referenced him not just as the Wizard of Oz, but he's also kind of like Johnny Depp's character in Pirates of the Caribbean. He's Captain Jack Sparrow. He somehow survives <laughs> despite all of his inadequacies and uh, against all odds. He's the one still that in the end survives and often prospers. And so, so the most important part here is what a fraud. But um, but can, can you imagine if we had known back in March of 2016, I wrote a column about this, which you can find at uh, Mediate, which is where I write as a senior columnist a couple times a week, or you can just Google uh, me and Mediate. And, uh, and, and this, I think it's called uh, Reporting from the Past. I imagine it's kind of a funny column. People seem to enjoy it. I imagine all... The reporting of what would have been back in 2016 in March, how that reporting would be based upon what we currently know. And my gosh, there's so many things we currently know, but this one's a big one because it hits right at the heart of Trump's entire persona, about the, the entire perception that he has created for himself. He's not rich. I'm not, not going to claim he's not rich. He's certainly not super rich, all right? He is nowhere near worth $10 billion. I don't even think he's worth a billion dollars. A guy who was anywhere near as rich as he is. Let's be clear. I get, I get it. Some rich people are cash. You wouldn't call them poor, but they're not, they don't have a load of cash on them, right? If you're super rich, you got some cash. But here's the other thing people need to remember. In 2016, we're near the height of the real estate market. He's, he is super heavy in real estate. If he really needs cash, just sell something. Just sell it. Of course, he doesn't own a lot of the things that, uh, most of the things that have his name on it, so he can't sell it. But if he's really that rich, sell something, and you need cash, you're at the top of the market. It's not like you're at the bottom of the market and you say, well, no, I don't want to sell now. No, you're at the top of the market. You could have sold. Instead, he goes to Deutsche Bank, and even Deutsche Bank wouldn't give him the money. This goes right to the heart of the Trump con. And it's one of many things that I wish we had known, or at least that the voters would have known fully, back when they were making him the Republican presidential nominee. The other thing, by the way, I wish, and this is in the column I wrote, I wish we would have all known that he was lying, not just about his interactions with Russia, but that he was currently actively trying to build a Trump Tower Moscow in an interaction with the Russian government, and again, lying about it during the campaign, that he was using his his presidential run, and eventually the presidential nomination all the way up until the day he was elected, apparently, based upon statements from his own lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to leverage a business deal with a foreign adversary of the United States of America. Now, there are a lot of people who say nothing could have changed the Republican primaries in 2016. I don't believe that, because while Trump had a cult back in 2016, he was not Superman, and that cult was not large enough. Things changed as soon as he becomes the nominee, and he's the only option to defeat the evil Hillary Clinton. That's the main reason why most Republicans stuck by Trump 
come hell or high water because they still felt he was better than Hillary Clinton. And then once he's president, now he's a, he's a god. He, back, to the, back to the Wizard of Oz, he's the Wizard of Oz who killed the Wicked Witch. Okay, so so the Munchkins, the Munchkins are the uh, of the cult, the Trump cult forty five that I refer to, and I know I realize that in the Wizard of Oz, technically Dorothy kills the Wicked Witch, but uh, you know, the, but the the Munchkins are willing to give uh, the Wizard of Oz credit for protecting them from the Wicked Witch, and. And so it's the same way. So the, the cult today is not the same as the cult in March of 2016. It's just not. He's not the same guy. He's Clark Kent, not Superman back then. He's much more vulnerable. And I believe uh, that he would have been defeated in 2016 uh, if uh, early on we had known everything that we now know. Now, one of the things that I talked about a lot during the 2016 election, and I have to say, uh, I have, <laughs> I've been more vindicated on this issue than maybe any other issue I have ever spoken about publicly. That's all, and there are a lot of issues that fall into that category. But I was saying very, very early on in the 2016 election that there is something very funky going on between Donald Trump and the National Enquirer. I said it constantly. I was screaming that the National Enquirer is clearly a, an arm, a political arm, of the Trump campaign. And as we have learned more and more about the relationship between David Becker, the guy who runs the National Enquirer, and Donald Trump, and, and, and even this podcast is named Individual One effectively because of that relationship, because it was that relationship that caused Michael Cohen to be indicted uh, on campaign finance law violations where Donald Trump was referenced as individual one directing Michael Cohen to engage in this deal with the National Enquirer to cover up his, Donald Trump's relationships with uh, porn star Stormy Daniels and Playboy uh, model Karen McDougal. And that, that's where the name individual one comes from. So as we have learned more and more, I, I've been way ahead of the curve in one, pointing this out, and two, talking about the significance of it. And to, to fully understand this story, <clears throat> I think we need to go backwards, all right? <clears throat> and, and maybe this is why I have a little bit better uh, handle on what's really going on with the National Enquirer and Donald Trump than other people. Because to fully understand the National Enquirer, you need to understand a couple of things. Number one, the National Enquirer has extraordinary coverage as far as getting in front of eyeballs. A lot of people in the mainstream news media, they diminish the significance of the National Enquirer. They, they think they're, they're way above the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer is a tabloid. It's trashy. Uh, most of the stuff that they publish is, is flat out wrong, and most of the time it's absurd. And, and so, therefore, they don't think that the National Enquirer is significant. That's bullshit. The, the bullshit part is their significance. It's not bullshit that they, they do uh, say a lot of things that are totally absurd, and, and most of the time it's... It's just flat-out ridiculous. Now, sometimes they do tell stories that are true. They did some actually pretty good work with the O.J. Simpson case. They broke the, the John Edwards illegitimate child 
uh, story several years ago. John Edwards, a, a former presidential candidate uh, on the Democratic side back in 2008. So it's weird. They occasionally do come up with some gems, but by and large, their stories are absurd. But, but here's the thing. They get in front of eyeballs, and the reason why they get in front of eyeballs is not necessarily because of their subscription. It's because they are prominently displayed in, at the checkout line of every grocery store in America, or virtually every grocery store in America. And so what's on the cover of the National Enquirer gets seen by more everyday average Americans than probably any other publication that there is. And so it it does matter what's in the National Enquirer. Number two, you need to understand that the National Enquirer is not a journalistic organization. I think they are far more well described as a borderline terrorist organization. Now they pay for stories, but folks, uh, especially in this day and age where subscriptions are down and the, the media's business model is broken, stories aren't worth that much money as far as getting people to read them or consume them. That model is largely broken. So in order to make a profit, the National Enquirer has to use the information that they gain in other ways. And that's their new business model. And I mean, it's not even that new. Their business model is not, let's buy this story and people will consume it and we will be able to charge money for advertising or subscriptions and we'll get our money back and we'll make a profit that way. That doesn't work when you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars or 130000 or whatever it was, $150,000 to Karen McDougal to, to put her on the cover of a magazine because you're trying to cover up the president's affair. No, 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 no. That deal with Karen McDougal didn't work for the National Enquirer because Karen McDougal was worth $150,000. It was a steal for the National Enquirer because their relationship with Donald Trump just got cemented for $150,000. And when he became president of the United States, that became potentially the greatest bargain of all time. Now, with a normal president, (laughs) yeah, right, with a normal president, the National Enquirer wouldn't be able to cash in on that relationship because a normal president would be like, dudes, look, I really appreciate what you did for me in the campaign. That was so cool what you pulled off with Karen McDougal. And, you know, I, I can't believe I won. But obviously now we're going to have to be at arm's length because, I, you know, you, you're going to have to go your way. I'm going to have to go my way. And, and we can't be seen as being too closely tied because that would be scandalous and you know, wrong and inappropriate. <laughs> that, those things never occur to Trump. No, Trump runs his organization as if he's a mobster. And the National Enquirer is the muscle. And let me give you one other real quick story about how the National Enquirer works that relates to how this happened with Trump and why I was a little bit more ahead of the curve because I I was intimately uh, knowledgeable about this because I, as I've already mentioned, I'm a big golf fan. I used to be the biggest fan of Tiger Woods on the planet. What people don't understand about the Tiger Woods scandal 
when he got uh, in that uh, famous Thanksgiving uh, accident, car accident, hit the fire hydrant, his wife went after him with the golf club, and then all of his mistresses came out. That all began with a National Enquirer story. Now, I will go to my death believing, because, and I'm not going to get into all the details right now, but I will go to my death believing that the National Enquirer set Tiger Woods up, that his uh, mistress, Rachel Yucatel, uh, was on the payroll of the National Enquirer. I can't prove this, but this is, this is my belief uh, because of stories that she gave to sister um, magazines of the National Enquirer at the time where that she, could have, she was the only person that could have provided the information and how in the world they knew that she was going to be uh, in, in that hotel, I believe it was in Australia, uh, all the way back then, and they were, happened to just be there to take her picture. I'm sorry, that seems like an incredible coincidence, especially when you understand the full backstory. And the full backstory is this. The National Enquirer had Tiger Woods dead to rights on cheating way before that. They had him with a Perkins restaurant waitress. This is one of the strangest things Tiger ever did and shows that he had, he clearly had a sex addiction. A, a not particularly attractive Perkins waitress in a, I believe it was a church parking lot in a car. And they had photos and they even had DNA evidence. And I don't want to get into how they got the DNA evidence because it's pretty gross. But the National Enquirer had it all. They had Tiger Woods nailed on cheating with this waitress in a church parking lot. And what did they do? They didn't publish the story. See, this goes to how their, their MO is not as a journalist organization. I mean, that's a, you could argue whether that's a news story, but okay, at least it would be somewhat journalistic to say, aha, Tiger Woods is a fraud. He's, he's cheating on his wife. Here's the proof. And we're going to report this because it's the truth. And that's what we do. We, we report the truth. No, 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 no. That's not how they make their money. They make their money as, as an extortion vehicle, blackmailing people, engaging in terroristic threats. And so they go to Tiger Woods' people and go, um, yeah, here's what we got, and we're going to blow this uh, story open unless, unless you do something for us and we're open for offers. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's effectively what happened. And Tiger's people go, okay, uh, what do you want? <laughs> and they say, well, you know, we don't just own the National Enquirer. We own uh, some other uh, magazines. One of them is a, a men's health magazine. You know, it'd be super cool if Tiger appeared on the cover and uh, gave us a, an exclusive article about uh, his workout regime, which he has never talked about. And sure enough, when, that, when Tiger appeared, this was before the scandal, when Tiger appeared in that magazine cover, I was like, what the hell? I had a very similar reaction to when, Ty when Donald Trump bought Doral and Turnberry. I'm like, huh? Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. Something is going on here. Now, I never imagined what was really going on, but I made a note of it. And sure enough, this was blackmail. Tiger was blackmailed into doing that. But then, for whatever reason, the, the National Enquirer, being a terrorist organization, and you can't trust terrorist organizations, they, a couple years later decide to double-cross Tiger. They get him with Rachel Yucatel, and this time they decide to go with the story. I don't know whether or not uh, Tiger didn't meet their demands the second time or what it was, but they destroyed him. 
They destroyed him. They, for a couple of years, they destroyed him, his life, his marriage, his career, everything. That was all the National Enquirer. All right, now let's fast forward to Donald Trump. Because here we have uh, Trump and the National Enquirer, and the National Enquirer is engaging in very similar tactics with Karen McDougal as they did with Tiger Woods, only from the opposite direction. They're putting her on magazine covers to prevent her from telling her story as opposed to putting Tiger on their own magazine covers in order to, in an exchange, for them not telling what they know about Tiger. But it's, it's effectively the same thing, only upside down. So the, we get through the election. Now the National Enquirer wants something in return. Now, what I have said constantly since we learned about this whole deal with Cohen, with, with Cohen making the deal with Stormy Daniels and with Karen McDougal and specifically the National Enquirer and David Pecker, I have said that the most underreported scandal of the Trump presidency so far has been this issue of him taking the oath of office while knowing that the National Enquirer had blackmail information on him. That a terrorist organization could blackmail him. They could do all sorts of things. They could get him to do their dance for them. They could sell the information they have on him to foreign governments. And that is a real scandal. That is a real security risk. And now we have, thanks to Jeff Bezos, we have the makings of where this actually came to fruition. Now, there's no proof yet, but when Jeff Bezos came out this week, head of Amazon, the Washington Post, and said that the National Enquirer was trying to blackmail him into ending an investigation of Saudi Arabia and the National Enquirer and their relationship with Trump, and if he didn't do so, they were going to effectively publish his dick pics, and Bezos, to his credit, said, all right, I'm just going to lay it all out there. I'm going to put it all out there now that you've destroyed my marriage. Uh, well, he destroyed his marriage, but they, they helped facilitate it by publishing uh, the pictures and the text and what have you, uh, proving that he was cheating on his wife. But uh, Bezos has, has made it clear, and he has an investigator who has said to the media that he believes, based on his own investigation, that the way that the, the, the uh, photos and the texts from Bezos became public and got into the hands of the National Enquirer was from a, quote, government entity. Now, of course, immediately people are going, oh, my gosh, is this the United States? Is Trump using U.S. intelligence agencies to hack into an enemy, Jeff Bezos, on behalf of the National Enquirer or, or perhaps vice versa? Well, we don't know it's the United States. In fact, to me, the implications I've seen indicate it might be Saudi Arabia, with the help of Israel, interestingly enough. Of course, there's also the, the possibility that's Russia. But the point here is we have as close as we're likely to get, well, maybe we'll get closer, but we're as close as we're likely to get to the idea that, that here we have this relationship, this corrupt relationship between Trump and the National Enquirer facilitating itself in a way that threatens U.S. security, and even U.S. policy, because 
It doesn't take a genius to connect the dots here that if the National Enquirer is trying to broker a financial relationship with Saudi Arabia, they use their relationship with Trump to lure Saudi Arabia in. Saudi Arabia and the National Enquirer both want to suck up to Trump, and so they go after one of his arch enemies, Jeff Bezos. They hack into his phone. They destroy his marriage, and maybe they even threaten the Washington Post from reporting about Trump and the National Enquirer, and Saudi Arabia. And then, of course, we have the Jamal Khashoggi assassination, where Trump has gone completely soft and made numerous statements, much like he he does with Russia, supporting Saudi Arabia's completely and totally... It's just flat-out ridiculous. ...assertion of what really happened with Khashoggi, who, by the way, of course, wrote for the Washington Post, Bezos' paper. So this all ties together. Again, we don't have proof of all this yet, but this is not difficult. This is not difficult to fully understand how this could have happened. And the point here is this all goes back to the fact that Trump runs his organization as if he is a mob boss and the National Enquirer is the muscle. And the former uh, editor of the National Enquirer believes that this whole Bezos thing was the National Enquirer trying to get back in the good graces of Trump after They had cooperated with authorities on the Michael Cohen situation. So again, I want to emphasize, we don't have 100% proof on this, but Bezos would not be making these types of allegations as the owner of the Washington Post unless he was confident that there was something legitimate here. And if you look at it logically, it all makes perfect sense. But this is a scandal that no one wants to put the pieces together on. The media still is not ever made an issue of how in the world do you take the oath of office as president of the United States knowing that you all your dirt is in the hands of a terrorist organization that has an incentive to use it with foreign governments and now we have evidence that that's exactly what may have happened. So the real Trump scandals are often not the ones being publicized and whether that's by design or or just his dumb luck I'm not sure. All right, well, that's the, uh, that's the real story of Trump's relationship with the National Enquirer that you're unlikely to get anywhere else. And that's why, hopefully, uh, you're a fan of this podcast. Uh, I ask you to uh, make sure that you uh, subscribe to the podcast, make sure you review and rate it, uh, make sure that uh, you share it via social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. If you tag me, I will be happy to sh- reshare it. We hope you like what we're doing so far. We plan on putting out about two episodes a week of the Individual One podcast. You can contact me uh, via my email at johnz at mediaite.com, which is also where you can find all the columns that I write. We'll have a Individual One uh, podcast email out shortly. And uh, we're going to start something new here. I should have done this last week since last week's, uh, the second episode dealt with, is Trump more likely to be removed or be reelected. I should have done this starting in episode two, but we're going to do this at the end of every episode now. I'm going to give the current percentages based upon my interpretation of those two possibilities. And right now, the official individual one, <laughs> it's very official, the official individual one uh, prognostication is that there is a 10% chance that Donald Trump will be removed from office for, for whatever reason, not finish his first term. 10% chance of that, and a 40% chance that he will actually be re-elected. We'll keep you updated episode to episode on how and if that changes. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. 
This is the Individual One Podcast produced by the Global Story Network.